Hello, everybody, and welcome to Hangouts and Headlines, the 1st of November, 2022. How was your Halloween, everybody? I can't speak for you, of course, but I walked more houses than I've ever walked in my life. So I may never leave this seat today, but I hope you had a fun Halloween. Also, if you didn't see, because I know Mrs. Hoglaw, co-counsel, is in chat right now, and she doesn't want me to share this with you, my wife did a video of her own crafting some things, and I'll probably link it in this description, but if you're looking for it, check out my Twitter, check out her Twitter, and let her know how she did her very first video on this wonderful platform, uh, and honestly, I think she did a fantastic job, so go check it out. She doesn't want anybody to know about it. She got mad at me for retweeting it, uh, but go let her know that uh, you've checked it out and uh, you, you've seen what she's done, because I'm very, very proud of her, and I think it's awesome. Now, for the rest of us, it's November. It's no longer October. No more spooky things. We move directly into Thanksgiving and watching the Detroit Lions play football. Uh, how are you doing? Tell me about your Halloween. Tell me about your Monday in general. And then we have some rather long articles today, so we'll probably get started with headlines a little bit early. But I think the topic is pretty universal, regardless of whether you went to a high-end college, a high-end university, a uh, low-end university, a low-end college, none at all, doesn't matter. I think we can all kind of speak to whether or not we have good teachers, whether or not we have bad ones, and what looks like uh, softness in students or hardness in professors, uh, and we'll have that conversation. I think it'll be a good one. So how's everybody doing? B says Halloween was great. We had so many kids trick-or-treating. I ran out of candy way too soon. I think that's awesome. I had to, actually had to visit my Papa Hogue and Mama Hogue uh, the other night, and they told me the saddest thing, which is that we were the only trick-or-treaters they got, which is just a bummer. It's just a bummer for them. Uh, now, they did try to give us like 1,400 candies, which we did not take, uh, but we'll go back and eat some of those when we visit them again. <laughs> uh, and we do have a uh, smiling, laughing emoji and a jack-o'-lantern emoji. My God, it's full of lawyers. Says law of improbability, sweating, little sad, little concerned emoji there. Yeah, absolutely. Sherry's a little bit worried about the discussion today. I teach English in higher ed. You know what? We're in a full reasonable minds can ter uh, re reasonable minds can differ territory here on this particular question. So I don't think you need to be worried, Sherry. But we'll see. We'll see what chat says. Certainly, there are some strong opinions both in the New York Times article. Uh, and in just some of the stuff I saw floating around in chat before I started this episode. So we'll see. Uh, but I do think there are probably legitimate points on both sides. And those are always fun uh, to look at. So hopefully nobody is nobody's too attacking on this topic. But I think it'll be an interesting one to talk about. Uh, Huckle uh, says, have you decided against covering the chess lawsuit? Again, it's just a matter of the list that I have and what I decide to cover. I have not really missed a day of doing videos. Uh, and so it's just where it is on that list. I can tell you today, right now, I'm very likely to do a virtual legality on the uh, IKEA cease and desist lawsuit threat uh, against an independent video game maker, probably that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of the stuff from the intercept that went out from DHS and uh, Twitter, and Facebook and things like that. So that'll be on the list. Uh, and I did see that I thought a, a number of my colleagues, or at least a few of them, covered some of the chess stuff. So I don't know that I will. Um, I scanned it, and we'll see. Uh, but 
right now I've got other stuff on the list before that. And I do as many videos as I can, folks. If you were following the channel yesterday, you know I did three. Uh, so we did three videos in a day, which is honestly too much. <laughs> uh, but there was stuff I wanted to get out there. And it was important that we got question time done because of the wonderful support from folks like you. Uh, so I haven't decided against it. It's just kind of right there in the middle of the list. Uh, and things keep popping above it. Uh, Anero says, I started hearing Christmas music at Popeye's two weeks ago. So I think we're way past Thanksgiving in the holiday timeline. <laughs> I was told by co-counsel the other day that uh, she was out shopping. And this was like October 26th, October 25th, something like that. And they had the Christmas stuff up. And I thought that was interesting because generally speaking in my head, I think you can't put the Christmas stuff up at least before uh, Halloween at this point in time, but apparently I'm wrong on that because people love, people love Christmas. And so the store's set up. Kelly says, my eight-year-old was a cyborg. I printed temporary tattoos with biomechanics. It was fun. That sounds fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Disney Nerd 85, we didn't have nearly as many as we usually do and still have a bucket of candy left. Well, that's why it's always important. First rule of Halloween is to buy candy that you otherwise would like for yourself, right? You give it out, great. If not enough people come by, you have the extras. It's all good. Got to double up on that. Cerebral Freyer says, Mrs. Hoglaw, he's hoping you forgive him before you get back home so you don't give him a knock upside the head. <laughs> In terms of pitching or video, I'm always going to pitch my, my wife's video. That is awesome. She needs encouragement. She did a great job. She worked very hard on it. She comes to me the other day and says, wow, there's a lot of buttons you have to hit to get a video up there. And I said, right, right. Give a little bit more respect for the thousand plus videos I have up now, don't you? <laughs> PE says, hello and happy November, everyone. Fantastic stuff. Gina says, good morning from Boca Raton. Had a great day yesterday and loved Mrs. Hogue's first video. Yellow heart. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Law of Improbability is asking, have you seen the new U of M med school oath? Oh, talking to Carrie. Uh, I have not. I've not. I assume that's University of Michigan. University of Michigan always at the forefront of these kinds of stories. Plant Freak says Darth Vader as a five-year-old and his beanie baby doodle, four months, were a hit at Homar Graveyard and Leaf Piles for running and jumping in to get candy was amusing. <laughs> yeah, I would jump, I'd, I'd jump in leaf piles. It's just a good time. My kids would definitely do that. Aaron Morgan had a fabulous Halloween, lots of trick-or-treaters in a very wet Bristol, UK, then had my teen and friends partying in the attic till midnight-ish. Oh, man. I was definitely asleep by then. I wore myself out. Three videos, 40 houses, tuckered out. <laughs> Francis Lou, who curious about the articles today, had a lot of these discussions going through higher ed. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the articles are fun. I think the commentaries are fun. I'm actually going to try to bounce between chat and some of the comments a little bit more than I usually do, because I think they are presented, um, let's say, provocatively. And I think we can get kind of uh, chat's feel on each of them as we go through. Like I said, I think we're going to start that early. Here's Papa Hogue. It was sad talking about the fact that there were no trick-or-treaters, but it was great to see you and the girls. We love you so much. Happy November. Happy November. Happy November. We got to steal ourselves here in Michigan for the bad months, <laughs> the sad months. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was just bummed about that, Dad. I was bummed. So I'm glad we got to see you too. 
Andy says, I helped my friend, a small shop owner, get ready for Christmas. Christmas tree emoji. Whenever you are a shop, small folks. Whenever, wherever you are, shop small, folks. I got it. I got it. Happy smiling emoji. Yeah. Yeah. Small businesses. Lifeblood of really both Hogue Law and in general, the economy. Uh, Lovely became a YouTube member. Thank you so much, Lovely. I hope you enjoy it here as members. Uh, we, we had a, a really strong month in terms of membership and Utreon and Patreon. And I want to thank all of you for all of that uh, because that's been amazing. Red, I find it hilarious that North American students complain about hard education when they have multiple choice questions. I actually don't know that we got a details about the organic chemistry tests on this particular topic, uh, but very often there are multiple choice questions. No question. Hogue, would be a comparative to other education systems being appropriate with the topic today, i.e. Korean students study from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. each day with homework afterwards? You know, we can talk about that. I, I don't want to really make it into kind of an international, you know, who's better than who kind of question. We're talking specifically about the American experience right now, which is coming off a couple of years of pandemic and lockdowns and things like that. And that's a part of the story. Um, but also professors uh, and whether or not they get locked into their ways and whether or not they can still reach people and communicate and educate. And what's more important is kind of the value of the credential or the education of the knowledge. And does it matter between majors and things like that? So we have a lot to talk about, uh, but I don't think we're going to bring in the international element because I think that's likely to uh, result in a little bit less reasonable minds differing uh, early in the morn here uh, in November. Uh, Britt with a, an amazing super chat. Britt, you, thank you so much. Growing up when dad was teaching us to play cards, he did two things. One, he had to play for something, not just fun. <laughs> Early gambling lessons. Two, he would never let us win. He'd say, get better. We would play Go Fish for Penny. So now I know uh, what he would say to these students. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm going to tell you, I've gone through these articles, we've talked about them, and I think one of the interesting things that'll happen, especially when we get to the opinion article, is that there are there are bad points, certainly, uh, but there are good points presented by either side, and there's going to be a little, there's going to be a little bouncing. It's one of the reasons that, uh, that I wanted to cover this particular set of articles is because it did remind me of reading a Supreme Court decision. So then we're like, well, I guess that's a good point, but oh, that's a good point. Uh, and, and having that conversation is going to be fun. But certainly there is uh, there is a philosophy that is essentially what in video games we might call get good, <laughs> spelled improperly because that's what gamers do. Uh, and it is, yeah, if, if you want to be expert at something, if you want to be master at something, if you want to get a master's, if you want to have a PhD, if you want to go and perform medicine, then it's really important that you know these things and knowledge is knowledge. You can disagree with the pedagogical approach of imparting that knowledge. And some of that is there in the petition we're going to talk about. Uh, but in terms of what their job is, it's to profess. It's to get that knowledge in your head. Uh, and if you don't get it in your head, that's a problem for proceeding with like the degree, whatever it is that you're seeking. So we'll see. You'll see some fun stuff. I think everybody's going to have an opinion on this. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it. I think it'll be an interesting one. Rick, have you ever watched the 12 Monkeys series, the TV series? I've watched the first couple of episodes. I've never gotten further than that. Is it worth watching more of? Um, I, I, It wasn't something that I deliberately dropped. Um, you know, like a squirrel out in the street, I think there's just things that were more shiny at points in time, and I have never finished that series. 
Ms. Ogla says, shop small like the merch store. We are very small. <laughs> Which will have some new things in it soon. Why am I just hearing about this now? What? The store will have new things? It's amazing what having somebody that can actually do this can do for you. I highly recommend getting a co-counsel, folks. It's very, it's very helpful to making any of this happen. Jay Jones, my grandma loves passing out candy, but she fell, broke her hip recently, and she's in rehab. Luckily, my cousin was able to stop by with my niece earlier in the week in her costume. I live six hours away. I don't know what niece is in quotes for, but I appreciate it, Jay Jones, and I'm glad that your uh, grandma got to pass out at least some candy. B says, my neighborhood had lots of trick-or-treaters. I took my differently abled adult daughter trick-or-treating, and everyone was so nice to her. That made my mommy heart happy. Heart emoji. That's awesome. That is fantastic. I'm glad you got to have that experience. Organic chemistry is designed to fail future med students who wouldn't make it through med school. Yes, we're going to have that conversation, too, of what are called weed-out classes, I believe, in these particular articles. Sue Lillard, happy November. Love the month of gratitude. I have now pulled out my happy light. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, and we're going to do some fun stuff. Right now, Ian Runkle, still down with COVID, still right as of this second, planning to do his charity stream on Saturday. Uh, and I am planning to be there for a big chunk of time uh, to support my buddy and to support a good cause uh, in, in getting some charity dollars out for uh, sick kids. Uh, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to do that. If we don't, it'll just get moved to a different date. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think November is a great time to give thanks and, and give back and do all those great, great things. Law of Improbability says multiple choice questions can be hard depending on how the questions are worded. See the LSAT and my old evidence final. Luck cannot make up for careful wording. That's a problem with standardized tests, right? This is the lawyer in me. Is that on a standardized test, if you want to fight a question, you're not going to have any way to do that. In my law school exams, I know this is going to be a very on-brand story, uh, but in my law school exams, I would write on the back of the page as notes to the professor where I thought there were ambiguities in the questions uh, and answer what I thought he was looking for as the answer or, or she in certain circumstances and then say, here's how I think this actually reads. I believe these two or three or potentially all options are correct. Uh, and I would ask you to take that into account for the uh, grading of the whole class. Um, and I did that on at least a half dozen, at least a half dozen tests in law school. Uh, and that was taken well by the majority of the professors uh, and not taken well by some. Uh, but I think in almost every instance, we did get the, the question changed or disregarded um, or, or those th kinds of things because careful reading, it works in all sorts of venues, folks. Um, but you're absolutely right, law of improbability. You can make ridiculously hard multiple choice questions. Uh, the hardest ones, I think, were actually in my tax and corporate tax classes, uh, which are big old word problem math questions, where if you make any kind of mistake in drafting that as the professor, you create all sorts of problems. Violet Ivy says, organic chem was a lot of drawing transformations from what I remember. I only know from my friends that they hated organic chemistry, or I think they called it O-chem. Uh, at the time, turns out you don't need to take organic chemistry for economics or law. What can I say? Avoided that particular readout class. Midnight Wind, Hogue, I've never known anyone who did not have to take organic chemistry. It's very difficult part of life. Get over it, children. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the complaints that these people have. Maybe they'll work for you. Maybe they won't. I did not have to take organic chemistry. I don't believe. Um, if I did, it didn't stick. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I was into economics. We d- I definitely took like early biology, stuff like that, but I wasn't taking specifically organic chemistry. Uh, <laughs> Ms. Oglaw says, Britt, did we have the same dad? Sounds like my dad. Learning a little bit about co-counsel this morning. Cool Spring says organic chem was really hard 48 years ago. A lot of students didn't pass. Kelly says, I used to tutor. My old high school had started letting students retake tests as many times as they liked until they got an A. Students stopped studying pre-test. That was about 10 years ago. Well, I said I'm economics guy, right? So economics is the study of incentives. If you can go and retake it every time and essentially use that as a pre-testing period, what's the point, right? People respond to incentives. And if you change the structure that way, that makes sense to me, even if that might not be a great thing. Uh, In the U.S., it's usually only required for specific majors like pre-med and physical sciences. Like I said, I didn't take it. I don't think. (laughs) It's been a few years since college. Uh, Let's see what else. Uh, Ray uh, Raxes. I've never been able to pronounce your name. I need help on this. Uh, The end results was that I got into video games where I could play by myself and learn by trial and error without having to bet something. LOL. Yeah, there you go. See, don't have to lose anything and you can work on that. Yeah, if you go and you play a, a really hard video game, uh, generally right now, those are those are called Soulsborne games for a series of games called Demon Souls. Uh, and you can go and you can learn and you will be terrible at it. One story I like to give is that even after graduating very highly, tuning my own horn here, from the University of Michigan Law School, when I took my first practice bar exam, I did not pass. Um, so law school taught me how to study for those things. It didn't actually teach me the subject matter on the bar exam, which is a problem with law school. We could talk about it at length at some time. Uh, but I looked at that and said, okay, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to get working. Uh, and then I studied for the bar exam from graduation in whatever that was early May, uh, until taking the test in June. So it was, uh, it was a trying time. Um, but if you don't pass, you don't get to be a lawyer. Ginger Snap says organic chem is required for several careers that might have the right problem solving skills. Organic chem cannot be memorized. It needs serious problem solving skills. It's part of what we're going to talk about in this article. Violet Ivy says OCHEM was considered a gating class. The material was difficult. If you could pass it, you had the knowledge and grit to get through the rest of your degree. If you didn't, it's time to look elsewhere, a weed out class. Uh, And we'll see how the notion of a weed out class is being rejected by students at a pretty good clip, it would seem. Sardinisms, this pretty much sums up my tilt going in. My mom teaches middle school Spanish and works to exhaustion up way too late to create ways to keep the students engaged in learning. Well, and and that's a part of the story as well, right? Teaching and the teached have to meet in the middle somewhere, and that might be shifting as to where that is. I think professors do owe their students some level of competency in teaching. This is fair. Research professors can make classes far more difficult than needed. I think that's an entirely fair complaint. I think at least on the American university system, we've all been in classes where it is clear that the person is there to be published and to research their own stuff and obsess about whatever it is that they're obsessed about. And maybe you get a teaching assistant or maybe you get the research professor that just isn't terribly interested uh, and has, you know, go read this stuff as their basic pedagogical uh, system. And that's never going to be great. It's never going to be great. Carrie says, I had a plant pathology teacher, plant pathology sounds like a cool class, whose exams were all short answer. If you tried to over convince with your answer, he would mark you wrong because you clearly didn't really know the answer. Oh, 
So like the entire methodology of getting through law school then is out the window on that. possible I, I i wrote essays in a, in an over convincing fashion it's hard to say one thing that we will see here is students are going to complain about a shortening of the number of tests and the trick with law school is you've only had one test per class now that that'll get you up in the morning <laughs> those finals weeks are crazy uh currently watching my sister try to not fail a significant amount of her students for an entry-level class where she has made getting an A the easiest thing possible. Do work past the class. Yeah, I don't, I don't really doubt it. We have some teachers in the family that have similar comments sometimes. It's, uh, it's a tough thing. When I watched my con law class struggle dividing the number of representatives by the number of states, oh no, I realized that we went into law because we didn't know math joke was true. Lawyer math, as I say, you've seen me do math. Uh, here live on the internet. You've seen me do math poorly on occasion. I am still one of the more mathematically inclined uh, lawyers uh, that I have worked with. I have an economics degree. I do cap tables. I do uh, organizational transformations. And that is a real struggle in the practice of law in a number of ways. Now, fortunately, for the most part, I work with tech companies and those people can check me on these things. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, lawyer math, real. Absolutely. 100%. Also, use a calculator. It's just 435. You know how it is. Uh, recently, I was helping a girl I used to babysit write her entrance essay for a post-college program and was appalled by her English skills. It was scary to see the results of getting lax in education. Yeah, I mean, these things aren't, you're not born with the ability to, you know, grammatically uh, write or speak sentences. You're not born with the ability to do organic chemistry. So you have to learn these things. And if you aren't willing to learn, I mean, that's that's a question mark. That is absolutely a question mark. All right, and I see a lot of other comments just generally speaking about teaching. I'm going to skip ahead and we're going to talk about these articles early. So let's bring these up. This is a uh, New York Times article. And so one of the things that happens with the New York Times is it really doesn't like my highlighting. So I apologize. There won't be highlighting here. And I, before we get started, I do want to hit this wonderfully generous super chat from Amanda at UMD, uh, Maryland. I had a physics teacher who used his intro to physics to highlight physics majors and flunk out those taking a physical science elective. Exams were written to make sure no one completed or passed and required the curve. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an intro class. That doesn't seem like it should be done in an intro class. And look, professors are human beings like any other human being in any other role. And many of them can be very self-interested. Yes, egotists. Uh, and so this is this is bad, I think. I don't think an intro class should be doing this. Uh, but I do think that there are places in a major where you can do these kinds of gatekeeping checks. We're gonna, again, I'm going to bring it back to video games, which is that you know one of the things you do in a video game level very often is you do a kind of uh, halfway difficult mini boss or encounter with monsters to do a skill check to see if the player is ready for the boss that you've got up next for them. And I think that kind of teaching of process and get gooding uh, in video games is something that can equate to what we should be thinking about in terms of checking for, for competency on an educational basis, but it doesn't necessarily feel good to get you died up on the screen 35 times in a row. I can speak for experience on this. I am not good 
uh, at these various games. And so it takes me longer than my compatriots to, to play them. Uh, and that's, you know, it's not a great feeling. So I, but I don't think, you know, you drop into the game, you start out and you should face a dragon. I don't think that's right. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Okay. Let's talk about this article. At NYU, New York University, students were failing organic chemistry. Who was to blame? Maitland Jones Jr., who we'll be referring to as Dr. Jones, a respected professor, defended his stu students, uh, defended his standards, but students started a petition and the university dismissed him. So he's going, he's got a very difficult class. He winds up failing people. We'll see in the first four paragraphs here, basically the entirety of the story. Then we'll start getting into opinions. Uh, but he wants to say, you need this information. I need to have these abilities to fail people who don't otherwise have this information. And the students get mad. In the field of organic chemistry, Maitland Jones Jr. has a storied reputation. He taught the subject for decades, first at Princeton and then at New York University and wrote an influential textbook. He received awards for his teaching as well as recognition as one of NYU's coolest professors. But last spring, as the campus emerged from pandemic restrictions, 82 of his 350 students signed a petition against him. It's actually not that high of a percent. So this is the spring of 2022. Uh, NYU, as well as many, many universities across the country, had basically closed didn't drop their tuition, by the way, which is a part of this story as well, had basically closed, made you take video seminars, uh, Zoom calls, whatever it was. And then they were reopening to actually being on campus and having the traditional university experience this last spring. And it didn't go well for them. Students said the high stakes course, notorious for ending many a dream of medical school, was too hard, blaming Dr. Jones for their poor test scores. The professor defended his standards, but just before the start of the fall semester, University deans terminated Dr. Jones's contract. Now, a couple of interesting things here. We'll get into the details a little bit. One, Dr. Jones was on a year-to-year -year contract, so this wasn't like taking special steps to terminate a tenured professor, which is virtually impossible in a lot of contexts. Uh, and two, as we've discussed in the chat here already, organic chemistry has traditionally been this kind of uh, course, right? As a general rule, we don't want our doctors not understanding things they need to understand as doctors. Uh, and so I guess I'm not a doctor, but organic chemistry seems like one of those things and, and that problem solving skill that we want in general, our medical professionals to have. Here Pops comes in, one test uh, per class was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. This is law school. One of my colleagues would literally throw up while discussing possible answers with our study group after the test. Don't, don't talk about answers after the test. Folks, if you're in law school or if you're in any other context, where everything is writing on a test, whether that's the SAT, the LSAT, a law school final, do not discuss the answers after the test. There is no winning there. It only makes somebody in that group feel bad. Uh, and I believe Papa Hogue has a, has a story that says, you were talking about the bar exam and somebody said it was, and I'm gonna get these practice areas wrong, but it was like, oh, did you answer that family law question? And it was actually a property question. It's like, oh, and then somebody does. Somebody dies literally right in front of you. You can see their soul leave their body. And it's not good for anyone. Don't do it. Don't do it. Thank you for the super chat, Dad. Okay, so we have this guy. He's teaching organic chemistry. He's failing everybody out. The context is it's coming right back after the pandemic. Let's see a little bit more. The officials had tried to placate the students by offering to review their grades 
and allowing them to the, to withdraw from the class retroactively. That's amazing. Oh, you got an F? We don't have to count that one. That's that's amazing. I have never heard of retroactive withdrawal before. So NYU was really trying to, quote unquote, placate the students. The chemistry department's chairman, Mark E. Tuckerman, said the unusual offer to withdraw was a one-time exemption granted to students by the dean of the college, presumably based on the pandemic orientation. Mark Walters, director of undergraduate studies in the chemistry department, summed up the situation in an email to Dr. Jones before his firing. He said the plan would extend a gentle but firm hand to the students and those who pay the tuition bills. So now you get to see one of the great tensions in all sorts of industries, but here in higher education. The customers are the students, or very often more specifically their parents, or also as specifically as we've seen, the government who is otherwise subsidizing their loan payments. Either way, all of these various constituencies want to get some kind of value out of the education experience. The question is, what does value mean, right? From the student's perspective, they want a degree, they want a nice job, they want a happy life. Fantastic. From the university's perspective, or at least specifically the professor's perspective, who's been hired to impart wisdom, knowledge, information, it would appear that value is actually imparting that knowledge, wisdom, or information. And there is a distinction between the credential and the knowledge. And I think that's really the primary argument that is being had here. You are failing us. The professor says, yes, you can't otherwise do this thing. And I have a concern. And they say, but I need this degree in order to have that happy life. So that's fantastic. And the administration comes in and says, look, they're, they're paying the bills. All right. They're paying the bills. You got to get into our customer oriented track or what you start. Now, in my heart of hearts, philosophically, I wish that the university system and the credentialing system and the market for those things had bifurcated into a the notion of a certification program that made that made a difference, right? That if you go to this specific university, you know it's a hard certificate to get and you know if someone comes out of that university experience with that difficult certificate to get, well then you've got a doctor or a worker or an educator or someone else depending on who you're hiring that is going to be able to to meet whatever it is that you'd have them do. I don't think that has happened in higher education. I think this notion from administrators of they pay the bills, we need to keep the bills paid has taken over. And so you do see, you know, remedial classes in Ivy League universities. You do see folks with credentials that don't necessarily appear to be any better situated for real life as anyone else. The story I like to give about being a lawyer and working at big law firms is that very often I would be less impressed by the more prestigious law school than I would from the graduate of the less prestigious law school, that there was a certain amount of grit and determination uh, at the at the lower level law school, if you're looking at like the U.S. News and World Report, uh, that I wasn't always seeing matched up. Now, certainly there's intellect and certainly there can be things that work just fine. I went to a very prestigious law school, so I'm not going to just throw myself under the bus. But a lot of the times I really, really, really loved uh, the the associates and the graduates we were working with and we were seeing um, from the from the less well-known law schools in Michigan or the Midwest or otherwise. Uh, and so I do think this has kind of taken over a little bit. Universities handling of the petition provoked equal and opposite reactions. Now, I think the sentence is wrong, so look at it with me here. Provoked equal and opposite reactions from both the chemistry fa faculty, 
who protested the decisions. So chemistry faculty appears to have protested the decisions to placate the students, as far as I can read. And pro-Jones students, so these are these are people that are in favor of the professor who sent glowing letters of endorsement for the professor. Maybe I'm just completely butchering what they're intending to convey here, but it doesn't appear to be opposite reactions if it's pro-Jones students and faculty who protested the university's decisions. So maybe it's protesting different decisions. New York Times making things not terribly clear here early on in the article. The deans are obviously going for some bottom line and they want happy students who are saying great things about the university so more people apply and the U.S. news ranking keeps going higher, uh, said Paramit Aurora, a chemistry professor who had worked closely with Dr. Jones. So here's here, here's a letter from the faculty that says, um, yeah, they're just placating the money uh, and don't care about the credential or the imparting of information. In short, this one unhappy chemistry class could be a case study of the pressures on higher education as it tries to handle its Gen Z student body. Should universities ease pressure on students, many of whom are still coping with the pandemic's effects on their mental health and schooling? How should universities respond to the increasing number of complaints by students against professors? Do students have too much power over contract faculty members who do not have the protections of tenure? Great questions. Are we going to answer any of them? No. These are somewhat unanswerable. And how hard should organic chemistry be anyway? Dr. Jones, 84, is known for changing the way the subject is taught. In addition to writing the 1,300-page textbook, Organic Chemistry, you got to like textbook names. Uh, now in its fifth edition, he pioneered a new method of instruction that relied less on rote memorization and more on problem solving. After retiring from Princeton in 2007, he taught organic chemistry at NYU on a series of yearly contracts. About a decade ago, he said in an interview he noticed a loss of focus among the students, even as more of them enrolled in his class hoping to pursue medical careers. Students were misreading exam questions at an astonishing rate, he wrote in a grievance to the university protesting his termination. Grades fell even as he reduced the difficulty of his exams. Now, this is according to him, of course, so we have to take that with a grain of salt. The problem was exacerbated by the pandemic, he said. In the last two years, they fell off a cliff. We now see single-digit scores and even zeros. After several years of COVID learning loss, the students not only didn't study, they didn't seem to know how to study, Dr. Jones said. And, and here's, here's a situation that is real for the students facing their university and collegiate future here, which is, I think that's probably right. I don't know how many of you got to experience the pandemic lockdown years and the learning loss associated with them, but they are real and they are substantial. And we're seeing reports now all over the place of how real and substantial they were. So I have no doubt that a university professor that is otherwise working at a big time university teaching a very difficult course is at the forefront of seeing exactly what happened to our high school juniors and seniors over the last couple of years and having concerns about their pandemic studying progress. And then what do you do about it? Right? Because from the professor's perspective, I'm going to teach organic chemistry. You have to know organic chemistry to get a passing grade from me. Right? Like that's, that's the deal. Now he might be a terrible teacher, which we can't really tell from articles uh, but we do have at least his history that suggests that he, for at least points in time in the past, he was not a terrible teacher uh, and that he is known for teaching this particular course. And so we look to the other side of the equation, the students. Now, it's not necessarily the student's fault 
that the pandemic completely crushed uh, a lot of their learning in their last couple of years of high school and maybe early college careers. But what do you do about it? To ease pandemic stress, Dr. Jones and two other professors taped 52 organic chemistry lectures. Dr. Jones said he personally paid more than $5,000 for the videos and that they are still used by the university. I'm not exactly sure why the professors had to pay for their own videos on this stuff, but I'm not in charge of academia. That was not enough. In 2020, now this is the heart of the pandemic, <clears throat> some 30 students out of 475 filed a petition asking for more help, said Dr. Aurora, who taught that class with Dr. Jones. They were really struggling, he explained. They didn't have good internet coverage at home, all sorts of things. So you're locked out. It's 2020. You've made videos that are basically equivalent to your entire class, but <clears throat> you do have internet issues. You do have these kinds of things. This is a part of the larger pandemic story. And just me saying pandemic this many times is going to get a YouTube reviewer, hey YouTube, uh, to look at this, but we're only talking about things related to education. The professors assuaged the students in an online town hall meeting, Dr. Aurora said. Many students were having other problems. Kent Kirschenbaum, another chemistry professor at NYU, said he discovered cheating during online tests. When he pushed students' grades down, noting the egregious misconduct, he said they protested that they were not given grades that would allow them to get into medical school. That sounds like a standard kind of protest. And we've only got this particular professor's statement that they were cheating. But certainly, again, if the goal is to impart knowledge, if you're cheating, that knowledge is not being imparted. It's not happening. By spring of 2022, where this particular story takes place, the university was returning with fewer COVID restrictions, but the anxiety continued and students seemed disengaged. Note the editorializing here from the, uh, from the New York Times. They weren't coming to class, that's for sure, because I can count the house, Dr. Jones said in an interview. They weren't watching the videos and they weren't able to answer the questions. Students could choose between two sections, one focused on problem solving, the other on traditional lectures. Students in both sections shared problems on a group me chat and began venting about the class. Those texts kickstarted the petition submitted in May. We are very concerned about our scores and find that they are not an accurate reflection of the time and effort put into this class. Here we have another dichotomy, right? This is the kind of labor theory of value that we talk about sometimes on the economic side here on this channel. Um, if the goal is to impart that information about organic chemistry, it doesn't realistically matter how much time and effort you put in if you don't have the information. Now, we can absolutely have a conversation about whether the professor is a good one and whether they are actually teaching you in a way that is reasonable. But the notion of it does not accurately reflect our time and effort is the equivalent of a kind of participation trophy notion at higher education. And the issue there is, as we saw before in this article, if you want to be a medical professional, we can't really skip steps about what it is that you have to know to be a successful medical professional. And now you, some of you that maybe are in medicine can come tell me, hey, organic chemistry really isn't that necessary or what had. I don't know that. I do know that these institutions have suggested that it is necessary to understand, to have that medical career. Uh, and if that is in fact the case, as an outsider, a non-medical person that still has to go and get medical services from time to time, I want people to know the things they should know uh, before they provide me with those services. So... We're at a bit of an impasse here because the petition says we worked really hard and we didn't deserve a D or an F. And it's like, it's fair. I get that. I'm empathetic to that student. But at some level, if you don't know the stuff, we have to tell, we have to tell the world you don't know the stuff. 
Uh, and if there's any service to be provided by a university like NYU or otherwise, it's to say, oh, this person doesn't know this stuff. And our stamp of approval is when they do know this stuff. So what do we do from here now, folks? What do we do from here? The students criticized Dr. Jones's decision to reduce the number of midterm exams from three to two, flattening their chances to compensate for low grades. They said that he had tried to conceal course averages, did not offer extra credit, and removed Zoom access to his lectures, even though some students had COVID. And they said he has a condescending and demanding tone. Again, condescending and demanding tone, that's professors. At some level, again, my reaction here is, okay, you, we want you to be able to be taught. We want professors to be good. But there is a real-life component here, and, and you're going to have to deal with folks of, of all sorts of persuasions and all sorts of different pedagogical techniques. We urge you to realize, the, peti- the petition said, that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students learning, okay, it's good, and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. Now, well-being is going to be part of what we're going to see in opinions, right? We're going to see a lot of students talking about mental health. Obviously, the pandemic did a number on them, and I feel very, very bad uh, for that. Um, But they are going to be talking about things that maybe don't match up with the professor's goals um, in this, and really the university's goals outside of collecting money from happy tuition payers. Dr. Jones said in an interview that he reduced the number of exams because the university scheduled the first test date after six classes, which was too soon. And like I said, there are plenty of classes, including all of law school, that are one test only. He also had a number of other uh, excuses, I believe, on the accusation that he had concealed course averages. Dr. Jones said that they were impossible to provide because 25% of the grade relied on lab scores in a final lab test, but that students were otherwise aware of their grades. <clears throat> I don't understand this excuse. Because it's like, yeah, okay, you've got a big chunk of your grade coming in. You could still have a current average that you put up there on one of these um, you know, services. As for Zoom access, he said the technology in the lecture hall made it impossible to record his whiteboard problems. And again, I, as I said, you go both ways on this. I'm actually pretty sympathetic to the students. to say, all right, if you're teaching this pedagogical technique of solving critical thinking problems and you can't show the problems in the method that they have to use to watch them, if they have something like COVID, then um, it's on you to fix that. It is on you to fix that. So again, I I go both directions on this particular topic. Uh, Zachariah uh, Zachariah, uh, Ben Slimani, I apologize, a teaching assistant in the problem-solving section of the course defended Dr. Jones in an email to the university officials. I think this petition was written more out of unhappiness with exam scores than an actual feeling of being treated unfairly, wrote Mr. Ben Salami, now a PhD student at Harvard. I've noticed that many of the students who consistently complained about the class did not use the resources that we afforded to them. Ryan Zhu, who took the course, said he found Dr. Jones both likable and inspiring. This is a big lecture course, and it also has the reputation of being a weed-out class, said Mr. Zhu, who had transferred and is now a junior at Brown. So there are people who will not get the best grades. Some of the comments might have been very heavily influenced by what grade those students got. Yeah, and I think that's that's in fact the case, right? And that's what makes it very difficult for us to evaluate a story like this one because we all know that guy or girl 
in class who was just going to fight over every plus or minus and was completely illegitimate, but was going to try to pressure this, the, the professor or the teacher to give them the grade that they think they deserve. But we also all know teachers who are bad, <laughs> who are bad at conveying information. And one thing that can be happening in a story like this one is that this gentleman is old and had been teaching for a very long time and was teaching in a very specific way that doesn't match where the students live. And whose fault is that, right? The New York Times says who's to blame. And they're not going to answer this question for us. Spoiler alert. Other students, though, seemed shell-shocked from the experience, which seems a little excessive for classes. In interviews, several of them said that Dr. Jones was keen to help students who asked questions, but that he could also be sarcastic and downbeat about the class's poor performance. This is a heck of a sentence. Several of the students that the New York Times described as shell-shocked said that Dr. Jones was keen to help them, but he was also... Pretty melancholy about the class being terrible. That sounds normal. So just a lot of conflated, con contradicting information here. I think you could do better on Zoom calls and technology. But even the students that are angry and giving interviews to the New York Times said he was always keen to help. This is tricky stuff. After the second midterm for which the av they averaged hovered around 30%. They said that many feared for their futures. One student was hyperventilating. I don't doubt it. But students also described being surprised that Dr. Jones was fired, a measure the petition did not request and students did not think was possible. The entire controversy seems to illustrate a sea change in teaching from an era when professors set the bar and expected the class to meet it to the current more supportive student-centered approach with the underlying invisible ink question on the back of the Constitution here which is, are you getting the same level of intellectual education and results from a more supportive student-centered approach? Dr. Jones learned to teach during a time when the goal was to teach at a very high and rigorous level, Dr. Aurora said. We hope that students will see that putting them through that rigor is doing them good. James Canary, perhaps the canary in the coal mine, chairman of the department until about a year ago, said he admired Dr. Jones's course content and pedagogy, but felt that his communication with students was skeletal and sometimes perceived as harsh. Note that Dr. Canary here won't actually go to so far as to say it was harsh, but that it was perceived as harsh. He hasn't changed his style or methods in a good many years. The students have changed though, and they were asking for and expecting more support from the faculty when they are struggling. NYU is evaluating so-called stumble courses, those in which a higher percentage of students get Ds and Fs, said John Beckman, a spokesman for the university. Organic chemistry has historically been one of those courses, but do those courses really need to be punitive in order to be rigorous? <clears throat> I don't know, spokesperson for the university. Are they learning the information? <clears throat> if you can do it in a comforting, wonderfully helpful way, that's great. If it takes a little bit more uh, punitiveness, uh, then I think that's probably necessary. Dr. Kirschenbaum said he worried about any effort to reduce the course's demands, noting that most students in organic chemistry want to become doctors. Unless you appreciate these transformations at the molecular level, he said, I don't think you can be a good physician, and I don't want you treating patients. In August, Dr. Jones received a short note from Gregory uh, Gabadazi, Dean for Science, terminating his contract. Dr. Jones's performance, he wrote, did not rise to the standards we, requ we, we require from our teaching faculty. He, he declined to be interviewed. But Mr. Beckman, spokesperson for the university, defended the decision, saying that Dr. Jones had been the target of multiple students' complaint <clears throat> about his dismissiveness, unresponsiveness, condescension, and opacity about grading. Note that this doesn't actually relate to the conveying of information. 
Dr. Jones's course evaluations, he added, were by far the worst, not only among the members of the chemistry department, but among all the university's undergraduate science courses. Professors in the chemistry department have pushed back in a letter to Dr. Gabadazi and other deans. They wrote that they worried about setting a precedent completely lacking in due process that could undermine faculty freedoms and correspondingly enfeeble proven pedagogic practices. That is definitely a letter from professors, isn't it? Nathaniel uh, Trasenth, one of the 20 chemistry professors, mostly tenured, who signed the letter, said the university's actions may deter rigorous instruction, especially given the growing tendency of students to file petitions. Now the faculty who are not tenured are looking at this case and thinking, wow, what if this happens to me and they don't renew my contract? Dr. Jones agrees. I don't even want my my job back. I just want to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. That's the primary article. And I want to talk to you about it all. Because we, before we get into the opinions of various professors and students about that, what do you think on this? I said, hey, I bounce between various states on these questions because I think it's, a, it's difficult to ascertain from an article like this one from afar. But, but what do you think about a story like that one? Because what we're going to see is students, current students, teenagers, young 20 students. We're going to see professors primarily in their 40s, some in their 80s. And you'll be able to see generational divides, even with respect to those answers that I think are fascinating. Let's hit some of these super chats first. Uh, we got dad. We already covered him. Law school, very, very scary. I had fun at law school, but there's no question finals week is intimidating. Uh, just because there are so many bits where I want another sentence of clarification so I can judge better. In the New York Times article, I hear you. I hear you. There are places where they clearly kind of editorialize and then don't actually evaluate what their interviewees are saying so much other than to summarize it. They just kind of take the professor on his word and then take the students on their word. And it's like, this can't be reality. So I'm going to need some help, New York Times. And they just don't go that extra mile. Britt says, here's the real test for students. Ask them about the latest fad or who is celebrity X dating. If they can answer that and not a single question on the test, maybe you found the problem, LOL. We could all enjoy who is celebrity X dating, but you also have to get your job done, right? This is actually a conversation I had at my law firm once when we did those intro emails and I said, I love video games. And I was talking about the various ways in which video games can teach critical thinking skills and things because this is just who I am, folks. And I had somebody, a senior partner, an older man, come in and say, well, that's that better not distract from your practice of law. It's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't have a PlayStation here. I'm... I'm going to work at the law firm and then I go back and do, it's just like when you say you love golf, sir. <laughs> uh, but uh, those are definitely conversations that you have. So I think you can do both. You can love that kind of stuff. I certainly follow pop culture and fads and talk about them here, but you got to learn your craft as well. And so I think, I think that maybe is a bit of a problem. It was, it was a weird time the last couple of years. Tim Riggs says grades aren't given. They are earned. Reflect time and effort in the private sector. No one cares about your time and effort. They care about your results. These kids need to grow up. This is a little hostile towards the kiddos. Uh, but I will say this. My clients very much care about if I spend too much time and effort on something, but that's what happens when you build by the hour. Uh, so try to be efficient in various roles where you have a time component. Otherwise, yes, you're absolutely right. The end result is what matters, right? I think about that Ghostbusters scene where they're kicked out of, I think it's Columbia. I think they were professors at Columbia. And uh, Ray Stance uh, says, uh, we can't go in the private sector. They expect results. Not wrong. Not wrong. <laughs> With your birds, in my opinion, offering peer tutoring and study aid programs 
and evaluating the professor's teaching methods would be more constructive steps to take than dismissal. I think so. I, I think one of the aspects of this is I think this gentleman actually was close to retirement. That was probably a part of the conversations. He was on contract. He had retired from his big main job and was doing this year to year at NYU. And I think probably it didn't come out as hostile as the article presents it. By the time you get to the end of that article, he's like, I was going to retire soon anyway. Um, he doesn't sound too broken up about it, except to note that he doesn't want this kind of uh, inquisition style evaluation of professors techniques uh, to happen at the school. Maya Johnson says as a 18, 20 and 24 grad COVID hit students hard. Yeah, absolutely. Lost a year of learning forever. Students who really want it and afford it will retake the class until they pass. W protects the GPA. That's it. I don't know what W stands for in that sentence. What am I missing? Uh, wealth. Maybe. Maybe. Um, so thank you for the comment. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, right? We cannot separate the stories of Gen Z and how they feel about things from they had one, one and a half, two years of their lives permanently altered in a time point in their lives where that maybe was the most devastating thing that could happen. Uh, and so they're reacting to that and the society that did that to them. And I don't blame them. Uh, but we still have to make sure our doctors can doctor. Right. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming from with these types of stories there. It gets interesting. It gets interesting. All right. Let's talk about the opinions here. And we're going to talk about um, we're going to read this very short stub article. Then we're going to go through each opinion. Then I'm going to come back to the chat uh, because I think that's the best way to handle this, because there's a lot of different thoughts here that are presented. And I think everybody's going to have more thoughts on those as well. So this is going to be you know, we're, we're trying our own pedagogical method here. It's kind of a romper room, sit in, we're under a tree somewhere. If you guys want to stand on your desks and say, my captain, my captain, that's not going to be dismissed. You know, that's just awesome stuff. But let's talk about this article first. When a respected New York University professor was fired, that's what we just read about, after a minority of students complained that the organic chemistry class he taught was too hard, it seemed to reflect a shift in the landscape of higher education. Was this evidence that college students have become entitled customers? Or is the existence of a weed-out class, one that many students struggle to pass, an indictment of a professor's teaching? And if students have more power now, is that good or is it bad? We asked students and professors. Students told us that they feel that they're increasingly being listened to about how they want to be taught. Many professors wrote about how students seem distracted and unprepared, especially after pandemic classroom disruptions. Along with students, they cited many pressures contributing to decreased classroom performance, worry about rising tuition costs. Who can blame them? I'm talking to you, universities. Residual pandemic stress and demands as family caretakers. Other respondents were focused on ways to adapt. David Peterson Del Mar, a professor in the history department at Portland State University in Oregon, wrote that he invites his students to tell him what they want. And he has found that more than anything, they want to be seen, want to be known. Because of that, he makes a point of memorizing students' names, meeting with them individually, and offering encouragement and referrals when they're having trouble. It's extremely time-consuming and extremely rewarding, he said. Sophia Downing, a junior studying psychology and economics at a private university in New York, agreed that it was important for teachers to get input from students, but argued that students must do their part. Students should give feedback and ask for amends from a place of genuine desire to grow and learn academically, not as a way of making things easier for themselves. And I think that's a fantastic comment. And as I said earlier, we know of both kinds of student, right? I have to believe that all of us have interacted with both kinds of students. We can figure out a way to get an A versus I really want to make sure I know this stuff better. 
And you can read more perspectives below. That's basically the whole article. And then we get into the specific opinions. So that's where we're going to start off. We've got that kind of bouncing effect. We got the New York Times unwilling to commit. I really don't blame them. There's nothing to commit to on this particular point. But it can get a little bit frustrating. They just ask a lot of good questions. And then they say, hey, go judge for yourself. But let's judge for ourselves. Here's the first one. And then we'll come back to the chat. What's different about this moment in higher learning? Young people have a stronger voice now. And this is Charles Booth, 19 years old from Hoboken, New Jersey. I'm a sophomore at a private university. Unnecessary weed out classes that usually aren't even important to your major should be completely removed from curriculums or taught in a different way. Students who don't have the means to support themselves academically should not be weeded out. This is, this is kind of wealth language here, but then it's about academics. Young people have a stronger voice now, and the petition at NYU shined a light on this long-standing issue. So that's the first comment we have. This is student-side, student-directed. What do you think? Because I can tell you from my perspective, this probably shifts too far from my comfort level, right? Unnecessary weed-out classes don't have anything to do with your major. Yes, I suppose if you are an English lit major that is forced to take organic chemistry, I can understand this argument. That doesn't appear to be the case. We're talking about pre-med type students that have to go through this particular weed out class. I think that's probably justified. We do want to make sure that the universities and the professors are able to meet students where they live. But if you don't have the means to support yourself academically, we get into a difficult question. Should the university have remedial classes? Perhaps. Should the university offer tutorship? Perhaps. And other kind of support like that? Maybe. But at the end of the day, you are going to have to pass the class for the value of the credential to have any meaning. And, and some of the credential inflation that we're seeing at the employer level is because universities are kind of kicking this bucket down the road. They're looking at this question and saying, well, all right, let's let people pass. And if you let people pass and your initial degree is worth much less than employers want it to be in terms of what it signals to them, you've got a problem. And ultimately, long term, you've got a problem with those tu tuition payers, because if it loses all value, you're not going to have them lining up anymore. So it becomes a question. I understand why students want this. What do you all think about this? I got a couple super chats we'll hit first, and then we'll talk about uh, some other comments. So the cost of a credit at NYU is almost $2,000. And organic chem is probably four or five credits. I would freak out about failing the class too. Money is an issue right? You will not hear me sit in front of you and tell you that university tuition payments aren't an issue. They have grown leaps and bounds. We did a uh, headlines and hangouts about Disney prices. Universities are much worse. And we could talk about subsidization and all sorts of stuff. We're not going to have, we're not going to have a student loan forgiveness conversation today, but all of those go into the same kind of discussion. And that is NYU or any other university. It's not limited to NYU going and increasing prices way above where it's comfortable to not go and get that value out of what, you, what you've what you paid for. And that creates its own problem. Absolutely, T. Great comment. Lindsay Metcalf, thank you so much for the generous super chat. Like many situations, I feel like people are oversimplifying by blaming just one party or another. We're trying not to do that here, certainly. When the root of the problem seems to be more complex issues, underfunded public school systems, for example, there are so many things that go into arriving at university effectively unprepared to to work within that university environment. So you're absolutely right, Lindsay Metcalf. And we can have all those conversations. We are not in a position to have a 16-hour hangouts and headlines today where we evaluate all of the structural issues in and around academia. But maybe someday, 
24-hour charity stream. We will do it for literacy and teaching economics to kids, and we'll just talk about education all day. It'll be it'll be fun. We'll do video games on the screen that relate to education and teaching in classes. We'll get Willie Beamish in here, uh, Bully. We'll have all sorts of good times. Uh, that sounds like a great idea, honestly, Lindsay Becko. Uh, thank you for the chat. You are 100% right. Cal Marie, I have little patience with younger generations who seem to often complain about things being hard. Life is hard. Coddling students is a recipe for disaster. And I think this is the other side of the coin, right? And I don't disagree with this sentiment either, which is that if you aren't preparing them to succeed, you're preparing them to fail. Uh, and yes, you can get rid of them after they're done with their four years or five years or six years at your institution. But what value did you actually serve? What did you add to the world? What did you add to society? If you're just taking their tuition dollars and sending them out to not succeed. Uh, and so I do think that sometimes students go too far and say, hey, we're the customers and we need this, this, and this. And the, the university, the adults in the room had to say, no, if you really want what is going to help you succeed the most, it's working hard right now. And we'll try to do our best to support you. But this stuff is hard. Organic chemistry is hard. Advanced mathematics is hard. All sorts of things are hard. Studying Supreme Court cases is hard. Law school, as my father said in his chat, had people throwing up. It absolutely did. Had people run out of the bar exam <laughs> at my exam. I did. And, you know, we don't have to be, oh, that's funny. These people are all, you know, essentially traumatized by this process. But we do actually have to have an expectation that if you want to succeed, if you want to be the very best, like no one ever was, you're going to have to put in that work. And hopefully we can come to a place where, as a society, we can look at this from both directions. Yeah, there's crappy professors. There are. There are ones that are bad or unmotivated to teach. Is this that circumstance? It doesn't necessarily seem like it. So we have to evaluate that as well. Thank you so much for the chat, Calmarie. I think that's a great point as well. Tim Riggs, to be a bit more fair to the students, bouncing. I see this as a failure in secondary and primary education. Also, matching Lindsay Metcalf. Critical thinking is gone. Our education system is archaic and needs a complete teardown and rebuild. I don't know whether it needs to be burned to the ashes and restarted or not. I can tell you that virtual legality exists, that Hoglaw's YouTube channel exists uh, right now to hopefully walk through more critical thinking and critical reading of materials and doing my little part here in this corner of the world as best I can because I think it's so, so important. And I think it does help in virtually every aspect of your personal education. And I don't mean formal education. I mean, when you leave university, you don't have to stop learning. I love learning new stuff. It's a lot of fun. I love learning new skills. That's why there's a YouTube channel as well. It's like, can I do this? What are the buttons? How does it work? And that is a fun process. But there certainly do appear to be people that don't engage in that critical thinking. And whether or not that's a result of their formal education or not, it is definitely a deficit that we can all hope to try to get better at in our personal growth, and then hopefully spread that message of critical thinking, reasonable minds can differ, all that good stuff. Laura, as a lab tech in over-nursing students, be afraid. Laura, don't tell me these things. I need nurses, Laura. I'm gonna need nurses and doctors. I don't wanna be afraid. I don't want to, Laura. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the concern, right? For the actual societal impact of this kind of thing. Uh, let's see what some other folks have to say. We've got a we've got a life is hard, life isn't fair kind of angle. Anyone who tells you differently is selling you something. I, I think that's a totally okay thing to tell people. 
but we, we can say, hey, is this overly traumatizing for just the life is fair concept? My job competitions involve a weed out assignment. Most understand the theory, but have no idea how to apply it. Uh, what they know in a case study makes sense. I had a teacher in high school who called us goat herders and would never be anything but working at McDonald's. See, this is traumatic. I don't know. I don't know that you have to go that far. Uh, but you do have to impart wisdom. Sardinism says every nationally required standardized test needs to be removed. Okay. And teachers need to help decide the replacement. That's an interesting take because one of the problems that we can see is that those standardized test scores are going down. And the question becomes without any kind of foundational kind of plank to stand on Sardinisms, can we even evaluate whether education is working at a fundamental level or not? Now, I agree standardized tests are not perfect uh, examples of establishing anything vis-a-vis -vis education or information, but they can be kind of broadly aggregated into is anything being taught to anybody anywhere? Uh, and so I do think that they are helpful in showing, for instance, that the pandemic was a disaster uh, in education and that we should take that into account for future decision making. Bruce, I have a tenured professor and got a C minus, took the course again for a better degree. And the younger professor said nearly everything we had been taught went obsolete 20 years previously. It's a part of the story. It's a part of the story is that uh, there might be tenured professors that are research professors or otherwise just over it that are way out of date, both in their pedagogy and their information. Uh, and that's something that the university should be doing, right? That's something you should expect from the university is saying, hey, you guys got to be up to speed on this or you can't teach. You can't teach kids. Uh, and if they aren't doing their jobs, I think that rightly falls on the university itself, which of course is NYU kind of responding in that fashion here. Although they don't really talk about the information as much as the teaching style. Just as I've been saying for a while, the bachelor's degree has become the new high school diploma. That's in fact the case. You need at least a bachelor's and an advanced degree for a lot of positions. Yes, we call it credential inflation. And part of that goes back to legal uh, prohibitions on competency tests and things like that for a given job. We could talk about that history for a long period of time. We're really setting up this 24-hour charity stream. Uh, and yes, because those college degrees are necessary, because there was such a push for college degrees when they became necessary, uh, that college degree is seen as less useful, uh, essentially from market saturation, right? High supply, less demand, et cetera. Uh, and now you have to go and try to get something higher, a master's, a law degree, a PhD, whatever that might be. B says, I disagree with the demands of those students, but I also think jumping on younger generations in general because they're all lazy is overgeneralizing. Agreed. Doesn't lead to anything and lacks nuance. Oh, I think general, uh, the generational analysis, the demographic analysis in a lot of these places, the shorthand is, is wildly overstated, right? I don't think you can actually put on their desk, Gen Z thinks this. Um, there are individual experiences that make that up and they can be aggregated to some extent to some usefulness, but it is often dehumanizing. It, it, it lacks individual agency when you do that for generations. So I agree, B. I agree. Okay. Well, this was only one opinion. We'll see how long this episode goes, folks. Let's look at the next one. The current generation expects more in terms of honoring mental health challenges. Now, this is a professor of literature, uh, 44 years old. In my experience, teaching literature at a public university, millennials worried more about getting an A. The current generation expects more in terms of honoring mental health challenges and disability accommodations as they should. So the professor's on the student side on this. They expect you to understand the immense pressures they are under and treat them accordingly. This can occasionally manifest in wanting content that accords with their values. 
For instance, they would rather read books that inspire them and that respectfully address diversity than classics with problematic elements. Again, literature teacher. This has not necessarily been a problem for me as the canon has been challenged for decades and I welcome the shakeup. <clears throat> now this, this took a turn. This kind of goes into politics of education that I'm not as interested in for this purposes of this conversation. But you can see here the, the overall thesis, which is highlighted by the New York Times, is they, they aren't worried about getting an A, is the implication, but they are worried about honoring mental health challenges and disability accommodations. I don't know how to more broadly apply that to the overall student body and the student-professor relationship, uh, except to say uh, that, of course, people should be accommodated where they live in order to learn, uh, but they still need to have the information necessary. And whether or not you're changing things at literature levels from canon to other types of stories, I leave that to the professors. I don't know what that does to the literature experience. I'm not a literature major. Maybe one of you in chat is. I can't speak to that other than the fact that in terms of having a common understanding of history uh, and the, the human experience, I do prefer things that are older than newer because we just don't know what impact newer works are going to have. But that's me. Maybe you have disagreement there. That's the next opinion. Does anybody have any specific thoughts on that? Uh, Matthew says, I would tend to take a side of the professor in this case. I think the organic chemistry case, although what also shocks me is the professor being 82 and still teaching. That seems too old to teach people. Maybe most of my professors in law school were pretty old. Uh, not all of them, uh, but most of them. And uh, I don't know whether that impacted anything. I think for me, uh, it's uh, kind of a respect your elders. They've been around the block. Most of them wrote the books we were reading from. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. But it can get to a place where it's too old and you just haven't kept up with remotely the current generation or even how they think. And that can impact your ability to teach them. Certainly that Sarah got to say, some of this isn't a new problem. I read sponsored project proposals from research universities written by professors and PhDs in engineering, yet their incredibly poor writing abilities are beyond exploding head, shocked face emoji. Yeah. Well, much like lawyer math, I don't know necessarily how much I put on writing ability for folks that are in like engineering, but certainly you should have a minimal ability to communicate what it is you're intending to communicate. And I understand how that could be distracting when you're reading proposals that Sarah, certainly. BH girl, hello. There's research on short-term working memory decline in the current cohorts on learning memory tests. We are becoming too dependent on technology, leading hypothesis by the authors, meaning that Twitter, social media, YouTube videos are knocking people's ability to have long form concentration. I would believe it. I would believe it, right? The average class that I was taking back in uh, in law school was uh, an hour plus. Uh, and I, I don't know whether there's concentration issues at that level at this point in time. Certainly because you have a laptop in front of you, you can be doing whatever. Uh, and that can also lead to distractions in classes that maybe didn't exist way back in the day. Julie says, I'm Gen X, earned my BA in history in 2014 as a non-traditional. I was 40. Awesome. I had brilliant millennial classmates and others who couldn't write a proper sentence. Yeah. See, the generalization of specific generations doesn't work for me either. So that earlier comment, I agree 100% on. Uh, but you can aggregate at least to have these conversations a little bit, and sometimes they're useful. So I agree with you. Every individual is different. There are hard workers in every cohort. There are slack workers in every cohort and everything in between. Sibling Preacher says, trouble is that when some people say mental health accommodation, what they actually expect is coddling. 
Yep. We all know those folks. We all know those kids um, who look for accommodations in order to get um, special benefits effectively. Uh, and that tends to ruin it for the rest of us as it, as it goes. And those should be, uh, those should be carefully called out here. We don't have enough context. You're exactly right. And that's not going to improve with this article or the rest of the opinions, unfortunately. Ninyal 1994, education must move forward with the times. Technology has advanced so much that writing is falling wayside, calculators in our pockets, learning life skills is more important than ever. We're focused on the wrong things, says Ningirl 1994. I don't know that I disagree. You know, you get into this conversation when you're talking about math, as a for instance. I need to know the concepts. I need to know how it works. But do I need to do the arithmetic? Maybe. I'm sure different mathematicians will agree and disagree on that. But you do have the ability to get a calculator out basically at any time. Uh, and so when you have that ability, what is really important? I often say that law school, to some extent, was teaching you how to research more than information, that I can go and find things very fast, very quickly, very efficiently. But in any given context, I'm going to have to go find that thing. Uh, and that's a lot of how we do virtual legality, right? I don't know everything about every subject matter that I do a video on before I start. I do a little research project. And it's fun. It's, it's what I like to do. <laughs> that's why there's so many of them. Uh, but that's what I was really taught in law school. And focusing on what you actually need to know is important. Now, do doctors need to know organic chemistry? Certainly the professors that talked in the New York Times article suggest that they do. And so then we have a question of actual knowledge base. Thank you so much, Ningirl1994. Ningirl1994 with the follow-up. Are there more distractions or are more disabilities being uh, diagnosed and they are having more trouble? I don't know, honestly. I think there's definitely more diagnoses. We can see that in kind of the uh, teaching language. We can see that in some of the stories that are otherwise out there about folks that are getting accommodations at the high school or college levels. But is that because of the society that we live in? So difficult to say. Certainly, I think the people that brought up comments about the overall education system are right. Certainly, I think the people that have brought up comments about the pandemic are right. Technology. Maybe, right? I'm a big fan of technology, Ding Girl 1994. You know this about me. Uh, but has that changed my brain chemistry or the way I evaluate things? I couldn't say. I've been playing video games my whole life. So I have more electronic inputs than most from my, my very birth, really. Uh, but I didn't have a cell phone. Cell phones didn't exist when I was primarily doing my education up through college. Um, does that change the equation? Probably, I would say. And so that's that's a very interesting point that you raised. Cal Marie says, definitely a generational thing. When I was in college, it was never have occurred to me to complain that the class was too hard. Facepalm emoji. Uh, not certainly to the university. I, I definitely remember grousing about certain things, particularly, as I said before, tax was really, really hard. Tax is a lot of math for lawyers. Ah, uh, So the tax classes, two of them that I took were really hard. I remember some other difficult classes um, in law school, certainly that people complained about, just groused about, right? The typical kind of, uh, session that you have with your friends at the student union, um, but not to the university. No, uh, I think we at that point in time, which is a, a few years back, I'm sorry to say, uh, all basically thought the university wanted to impart this wisdom and information and knowledge onto us. Uh, and if we weren't catching up, it was it was on us to make sure that we did better. So we would have study groups and we would read cases every night and we would do those kinds of things. And I, I don't know whether that's changed or, or whether there are legitimate grievances here. It's, it's a tricky thing to kind of ascertain. Okay, next opinion. Students should have the right to tell administrators that they're being taught poorly. This is a 23-year-old student from Washington. I feel like the issue right now is more that pedagogy is lacking than Gen Z is lazy. 
I graduated in 2021 with a degree in biology from a private university, and I found many professors, particularly in STEM, were ambivalent about teaching. Students should have the right to tell administrators that they're being taught poorly, even if they don't have the final say over what should happen next. I don't know that there's anything to disagree with on this opinion at all. Uh, certainly, as I said, we know teachers and professors that are bad at their jobs. I think everybody does. Everybody has had that experience. And 100%, you should have the right to, generally speaking, in the end of class reviews, say this guy was terrible. Uh, and here's why. Uh, and I think that's enough for the most part to, to try to make sure that these universities are, are, are moving things around. What I think is problematic is when universities start to say toughness is badness because our little tuition payers are unhappy. Then we get into a problem. But overall, this sentiment, I have absolutely no issue with whatsoever. Does anybody else in chat have a different feeling on that particular opinion? Janice Drake, dark. I'm a Xenial, grew up outside, physical toys, occasional computer use. My nephews are fully digital and it shows in their general skill levels being lower than my generation. Maybe, <clears throat> or different. They might have different skills um, than you on that with respect to manipulating the computers and whatnot. Uh, I know my girls are often very impressive with what they can do <laughs> with, with their computer technology uh, that I cannot. Lady Revan, any professor who bra brags on the first day of classes that half the class will fail is a red flag, happens all the time. Yep. Yep. A lot of professors take it as a point of pride. I don't think that's acceptable either. Your goals should be to pass everybody. To, with Your ideal world should be that everyone understands what you're trying to teach them and that it's working great. But a lot of professors do like to say, you know, look to your left, look to your right. Half of you won't be here. They love that one. Ardo asks me, when you had a study group, did you use your words to communicate or were you all staring at your phones and Snapchatting with each other? We didn't have phones for the most part at those particular meetings. <clears throat> we would be uh, talking. Uh, so generally speaking, the way that our study groups worked at the University of Michigan Law School were that somebody would order pizza. Uh, we would have that pizza in the middle of us and we would work on either the current cases and syllabuses or we would work on building what I used to call my master outline. Uh, and that master outline would be <laughs> I don't want to go into my process too much here. <clears throat> my master outline would be summaries of all cases referenced in each subsection of each portion of the syllabus written out in what usually was about an 80 to 100 page document uh, that I would then use as my study guide and um, mechanical aid uh, to taking my law school exams. Um, so I would build these super outlines. Uh, and then uh, we would use that study group session to uh, answer questions or examples for tax, for instance, which was our main study group, which actually had like <clears throat> homework worksheets, like work on this. What is this number that pops out of here? And then I would also work on those outlines together with those folks and uh, give out a few um, per class. Don't want to wreck the curve with those things. Those, those were golden. Uh, but that's what we would do. Didn't have a lot of phones, which is to your point, uh, understood. And let's go to the next opinion. Students stopped wanting to be educated and became buyers of credentials. I, I don't probably need to tell you this is a professor, age 61. I taught digital media management to postgraduates at a private university. And over the last few years, students stopped wanting to be educated and became buyers of credentials. That evolution created sides in a conflict. Students and the administrators who collect their tuition on one side faculty and our professional obsessions on the other, which is exactly 
what it sounds like in the New York Times story about this particular professor. Ultimately, I could not accept the mismatch of priorities. I left academia because of the changes I perceived in students and the administration that pandered to them. That means I failed to adapt. I felt a duty to do the right thing from my perspective. The students felt pressure to get value for their money. Neither of us is wrong, but we are no longer aligned, and that makes for a failing enterprise. I, I, I feel like he's just trying to gild the lily here. I think he thinks they're wrong, right? I think spending a lot of money to get a credential is fine, but it's not terribly useful if you aren't actually providing the information that that credential is supposed to represent. So I suspect, realistically, this particular professor thinks they're wrong, but this is the professor's side of the story, and it is the one that the New York Times actually suggests in certain portions of that article, particularly when the administrators contact the professor and say, you know, we got tuition payers here, my man. Absolutely. Arctic Ginger says, yes, I can screen you in on credentials. Now prove you can use them is my approach. Sure. You can get a, you can get a probationary period, but you're going to have to actually do the job uh, is going to be a problem for some. Lorna, if after reviewing the syllabus, the students stayed in his class, that's on them. I doubt he was the only teacher in the school teaching this. No, in fact, there are other interviewees in that New York Times article that taught organic chemistry. <clears throat> Paying for education. And here's the question. You know, the New York Times asks 20 of them. Here's the real question. When you're paying for education, are you buying a credential or are you buying knowledge? And what is the university selling? Because if it's just credentials, I will tell you this, those standards are going to continue to go down. Uh, and society on its own is going to have a problem with what those students can actually achieve in the world. I mean, like that's the issue, right? And that's a collectivization problem. But if they're just selling credentials, then what does it even mean? Ningal1994, there seems to be more of a divide between parents and teachers. They need to work together for a child to succeed academically. Too many not my angel parents these days. <coughs> my child can do no wrong is certainly a problem. Right. And we hear this from teachers a lot as well. So this makes sense. Ningel 1994 uh, of uh, you must be doing something wrong in your teaching. And it's not it's not my child that isn't coming to meet the, the education. It isn't my child that isn't doing the homework. It's you. You're the problem. And to the extent that that takes over at the low levels, primary education, secondary education, you can see how that kind of mindset can take over in the higher levels. Either way, however it comes to being, it's a potential problem in what our students can do. And these stories are important because if we have those problems, then we have major, major problems. Gina Lee, the buyers of credentials thing has some merit considering the cost of college education, but you should consider another path if intellectual stimulation is too hard. Right? Maybe. Maybe. The question then becomes, is the university properly weeding out their own side of things of people that aren't teaching properly or otherwise, as we saw in other comments, 20 years out of date? So difficult to actually look at these things and know precisely what the major problem is. When I was in school, organic chem was a weed out class. If you can't cut it there, you wouldn't be able to handle the rest of the curriculum for the major. It has a gating function for a reason, right? And maybe that's okay. We gatekeep because we know that you'll get further down the line and spend $200,000 and not come away with that credential because you can't do the work. So we do it early on and we say, you're not gonna be able to do the work. Can we talk about something else? And that might feel bad in the moment, but you can make the argument that we're actually saving you time and money and resources and emotional stability. And we're doing that for your benefit. We can imagine that as well. 
Given that we haven't seen the full petition from the students, there's an awful lot of assumptions about what they were saying was wrong with the class. All we have to go on is from the New York Times, I'm sorry to say. And hey, if you want to come out and say, Rick, you've read a lot of New York Times articles that you've critiqued with an inch of their lives, I would critique the one that we just read. You're absolutely right. There's editorializing. There's a lack of investigative curiosity. They take what the interviewees say and they just regurgitate it. They do this, okay? I will, I will happily meet you there. But we can still have a conversation about what we know from our personal experience. That's, that's part of the educational process, not formal, just us, just growing, hopefully having fun talks. Disabilities are a real thing. Our classrooms are not adaptive enough. I'll grant this. This is why this is such a tricky conversation. The students say, hey, we're glad that people are looking more at mental health and disabilities and, and the, the educational approach has not otherwise been responsive enough to that. I don't think the educational approach has been responsive to anything, right? The, the sitting class at the primary level and listen to somebody's seminar is probably not the best way to teach our kids at this point in 2022. I don't have a better way. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it's probably not. Uh, so all of this stuff should be constantly reevaluated and constantly experimented with and constantly, hopefully, growing. And yet it's not. So we can have that conversation. All right, let's do the next opinion. Where the conflict lies. It felt like if you were not succeeding then, you never would. I graduated in 2021 with a degree in computer science from a large private university. Our introductory computer science class was supposed to be an equal playing field, regardless of how much prior coding experience you had. In practice, that was far from the truth. I struggled much more than those that have been coding since childhood, majority white men, and less than those who were new to the field, more people of color and women. Our professors told us in not so many words that the first several classes in our sequence were weed out classes. It felt like if you were not succeeding then, you never would. At the start of the second semester, you could see the effects as our class became more and more a sea of white men. Professors should be held accountable for who leaves majors after their classes. <clears throat> Emma Reed, 23 Pittsburgh. Now, this is interesting. I basically disagree with the overall sentiment here at the end that professors should be held accountable for who leaves. <clears throat> and yet, I do think that professors can offer additional accommodations and offer different approaches to what it is that they are teaching. Does that kind of divulge specific differences on demographic lines? I don't know. I can't speak to computer coding on this. And should professors be taking that into account? Well, the Supreme Court is looking at that as of yesterday, uh, right? If you didn't follow the Harvard or North Carolina admissions cases, those were orally argued this week. And well, suffice it to say fireworks at those oral arguments. Uh, and it looks like that will be a heck of a decision coming probably next June. Um, so we'll probably cover it in virtual legality. But what is the nature of the university's responsibility to maintain demographic diversity is an open question. And whether or not many of these, not a private university so much, which basically doesn't have the same constitutional problems that a public university does, uh, but whether or not universities can actually adjust whatever it is that they are doing to improve or uh, demote the various expectations of various demographics is going to be an open question at a long time running. Uh, but that's the opinion of this person. And certainly I have heard similar stories about engineering and computer sciences and other classes having this kind of effect where you have ultimately the folks that stay are pre predominantly, I hear men, not white men necessarily, but, but that's okay. And, and not having the other uh, demographics match that even if they started the program at the same time. And is that acceptable? Is that demonstrating some kind of systemic issue? I can't say, but it's certainly a, an experience that students are having. And one does wonder uh, whether or not that's also reflecting on their experience in college. 
Melissa, when I was at university, it was a point of pride that a certain number of students would be gone each year. It was a campus rumor that a fourth of the engineering program was weeded out each year. I've heard that about engineering schools. I believe my brother had that experience when he was in engineering school. RHG Burns says, I have dyslexia and a heart problem, but was never accommodated. The adversity made me a competent employee when it receives offers for promotion every one or two years. The employment market demands grit. Okay, see, and this is, this is the other side of that coin, right? Which is that I have made myself a stronger, better person by not getting those extra accommodations. And I think reasonable minds can differ on that, definitely. Um, so I think that's great. I think that's fantastic that it has worked out for you. I do think it's an okay conversation for people to have about what accommodations are acceptable and what goes too far and makes it so that we aren't actually equating a similar kind of experience across students when we need to in order to give grades and give credentials and things like that. Francie Luhu, after I failed organic chemistry the second time, I met with my advisor to discuss a change of major. I was excelling elsewhere, so was advised to take OCHEM at another school with a different prof and passed. Sometimes it's the professor, folks. Really. Sometimes it is. And that's what makes this so, so hard. Natalie B., the white men are less likely to need to work while going to school to pay for it. Therefore, they can go to those study groups, for example. This is fair. Certainly, if you have a certain amount of wealth or blessing or just availability to really focus on your schooling, then it can work out better for you. The problem is, if we're evaluating what level of education you have across people, the all the underlying circumstances shouldn't matter, right? That we're actually trying to evaluate who knows more wh about what uh, and give the credentials on that basis. And yes, it can be absolutely hard, but those are fundamentally excuses for why the grades aren't up. And is that something that needs to be changed at the educational level? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, do, I do think some tech people for, uh, okay, hold on. Jason Kennedy says, I do some tech help for people who are newer to coding and frequently see people thinking they should be experts with almost no time spent learning. Get good is a real thing. Everybody is bad at everything to start. <clears throat> Generally, there are savants, but almost everybody is bad at everything to start. That doesn't feel good. Nobody likes that, but it feels pretty good when you're awesome at it. And so you got to put in that time. Ningal 1994 says, I think accommodations are most beneficial in early years while teaching them the tools they need to deal with the disability. That makes total sense to me, Ningal. Heathers, yes, it is. At Ohio State, non-chem majors were encouraged to take chemistry courses at the State Community College instead to pass. Are those credits then useful at Ohio State? Is that Does it work that way? So you can go take it separately, use it as your credit, and then proceed on with your major at the university? I actually don't know. It's interesting. All right, folks, let's see the next opinion. Part of this process is becoming adept at problem solving. I have extensive experience teaching undergraduate, graduate, and medical students in both seminar and large lecture settings at a private university. I used the Socratic method, attempting to gently lead the students through the process of problem solving. This is how I was taught in law school, by the way. I explained at the beginning <clears throat> that it was meant as a dialogue, not harassment. And if you don't know the Socratic method, it's cold calls, it's asking questions, it's probing assumptions. It's a lot of fun but I may be a masochist. I don't know. About 15 years ago, I started seeing undergraduate students become resistant to this challenge. 10 years ago, this discomfort had filtered up to the graduate and medical students. Now, questioning students in front of their peers is more or less considered unacceptable. It makes them uncomfortable. I consider myself a flexible, supportive instructor, sensitive to the needs of my students, 
I do not believe in so-called weed out courses. I believe in learning. But part of this process is becoming adept at problem solving under challenging circumstances or conditions, as he puts it. This is the one that I actually spoke to me the most when I was going through this opinion. And that is because I felt that the Socratic method, especially in law school, was so very useful. Uh, first of all, it kept people on their toes. Absolutely. But also it absolutely questioned your assumptions, your knowledge, your intellect, and all these various things from a professor that was in general, very, very, very smart. Um, and that kind of adversity I found personally to be very useful. Now I'm, I'm one person um, and other people are going to have different ways of learning that are different than mine. But I do think just absolutely getting rid of something like the Socratic method which does work for somebody like me, for instance, is going to potentially leave others like me in 2022 that are going through law school or whatever school they're going through right now, potentially worse off than they otherwise would have been. Um, and because of what he describes as being uncomfortable uh, from other students. I don't, I'm not saying you have to run every law school class like the paper chase, but I do think there is value in all sorts of different techniques. And so from my perspective, this is a real loss. If this is in fact happening as described by this professor, this is a real loss in what you can do and what you can teach and how you can teach it. Because I do find this particular method to be very, very useful. And Papa Hogue comes in with a super chat. Hey, wait a minute. I'm unfortunately an old white guy. We know this dad who had no money and paid for school by washing pots, working at McDonald's and teaching as an undergrad TA. I found a study. I still found a study group. Okay, dad, you are awesome. Everybody tell Papa Hogue he's awesome. We understand. <laughs> there are other circumstances, dad, of course. Uh, that could be even more trying than yours, and that could drive down their ability to proceed in law school or college or whatever. We can acknowledge that while still understanding that there are people that can make it work. It is a higher difficulty level of video game, as I've been using as my metaphor here, than perhaps easy mode, where you do get to dedicate all of your time to your stu your studies and your schooling and whatnot. So I don't. I, I, you are the exception that proves the rule, potentially. I'm always very proud of you, Dad. Uh, but I do think we can acknowledge that there are different modes of difficulty here. Uh, Carrie says, hey, exactly, Papa Hogue. Too many assumptions. You are awesome, Papa Hogue, says Secret McSquirrel. Thank you. Dad needs this affirmation sometimes, folks. We love him. We love him. You're awesome, Papa Hogue. Papa Hogue is awesome. Papa Hogue is awesome. You got all these coming in, Dad. <laughs> Papa Hogue Memorial ebook. When? You going to write a book for us, Dad? Get it self-published? We'll read it out. We'll study it. We will analyze your assumptions in headlines and hangouts. Uh, but no, we love you, dad. And yeah, absolutely. Different people can make it work. I do think it's a higher difficulty to have to make it work through all the things that my dad described. And that's worth noting as well. Professors are often resistant to changing their teaching styles. I'm an undergraduate at a private university, widely regarded for having difficult professors and curriculums. I think many professors at research universities tend to focus less on their teaching and more on their publishing. I also find that professors are often resistant to changing their teaching styles when something isn't working because for many... It doesn't seem to be a priority for them. In a post-COVID academic climate, many of my peers, including myself, are just not accustomed to the kind of effort that has been expected for decades in pre-med and other similar weed-out courses. This is a fascinating comment, right? Because you think from the first paragraph, it's professors need to up their game. They aren't changing the way they teach things. They aren't meeting students where they live. Certainly that can be the case. We've seen other comments that say the same thing. The second paragraph is saying... Okay, after the whole pandemic, I don't think that we're ready to study this type of stuff. We're just not accustomed to the kind of effort that has been expected. What is the action item? What is the ask here from this comment at the end of this particular opinion? 
professors need to meet us. Are you suggesting, commenter, that the professors need to grow accustomed to the fact that we don't know the effort needed to actually study these things? Because I don't think that can possibly be the case. If you are acknowledging, you're self-aware enough to say every other class has gone through this, but my, me and my peers aren't used to it, that sounds like the students have the obligation to get on the pace of the professors to learn the information, to me at least. Maybe some of you disagree in the comments. I think this, this opinion is particularly interesting because it's all over the place. Professor shopping happens, says Francie Luhu. Going to community colleges or nearby cheaper state schools to find a passable version of a class is fairly normal now. That's wild, honestly. Truth, research professors sometimes view teaching is beneath them. I've seen that in practice. Because it takes away from their research time, I see this a lot, sadly, and it affects the teaching in the classroom. I think that's a completely legitimate point. Honestly, I'm not sure that universities should be structured with kind of a research uh, professor also teaching classes kind of setup. I think perhaps those are different jobs. Um, but I'm not in charge of academia, as I have said already before. Gigi says, having worked in higher ed on numerous campuses, feels like most tenure don't even like teaching and prefer just writing and speaking engagements. I can believe it. Lindsay Metcalf says, the separation between those two statements implies to me that it's two different thoughts, not necessarily drawing a through line. It's fair. Basically just coming at it from both sides of the coin. I certainly think professors can improve, and certainly professors are often at research universities focused on research and not teaching. Uh, but that second thought is, is very interesting to me because I do think it has a certain truth value. What does adaptation look like? And we're at the very end of the opinions here, folks. I teach a lot of pre-med students at a public university. They're all hustling, exhausted, trying to one-up each other and get that extra opportunity or credit to distinguish themselves. They are burned out before they're even out of the gate. Rather than trying to weed anyone out, I've had the most impact just trying to engage them and get them excited about the subject matter. The current model is not how we should be preparing our future healthcare providers. My approach is I care about you as a human being first and as a student second I want them to treat future patients as human beings first and as patients second, which is a sentiment that I can agree with. I think generally speaking, we want our medical providers to treat us as human beings. The question is, does the student aspect of this suffer at all, right? And when we are talking about reality, we're talking about medical reality, things that actually happen, things that can be diagnosed, things that can be done uh, for those patients, we do want to make sure that what can be done is done for patients and that people yes, treat you as a human being, but also have the knowledge base to do what needs to be done to treat you as a patient as well. So I'm presuming that this professor is not saying I don't teach them uh, the knowledge that is necessary, just that you can change your foci on this. And yeah, that might in fact be the case. But I can tell you medicine is one of those areas where I'm particularly sensitive, looking at this being like, make sure they know, make sure they know the stuff, please. Really need you to make sure they know the stuff. BH girl, hello, says, oh my God, we need good doctors. I will bite my tongue. Yeah, and that's that's the thing, right? Absolutely, we need healthcare people to not treat people as numbers, to not treat people as insurance payments, not treat people as somebody uh, that is just going to keep the hospital running. But we also need those particular doctors or nurses or whomever to know when you have the flu versus when you have something worse, definitely. Papa Hogue back, I would like to withdraw my last comment. It was ego-driven and solicitous. <laughs> Okay, we don't. Dad, not all keeping with my recovery. 770 days completely sober. Now that's something to be proud of. Three hearts. I love you, Dad. You don't have to worry about this, okay? I love you. Thank you for the super chats. Everybody loves you. You are allowed your own opinions in this space. Reasonable minds can differ. We can have combative or conflicting comments. It is A-OK. -okay. 
Uh, I'm glad you're listening to this whole episode. I'm, I'm happy to have you here, Dad. <laughs> Yay, milestone, says Akaruki. Absolutely. Okay, let's get to the next opinion so that we can get on with our Tuesday, folks. Pretty soon, I implemented behavioral contracts for my students. After 10 years of teaching at medical schools abroad, I returned to the United States in 2022 as an associate professor at a small liberal arts university. I found college seniors woefully unprepared for their capstone, lacking in critical thinking skills, and like Dr. Jones at NYU, I had students file great appeals saying my class was hard. Fortunately, my dean did support the grade standing, but it left me feeling tenuous and constrained in my position. I've now implemented behavioral contracts for my students, clearly spelling out the time commitments needed to excel in my courses. I never expected to have to use this type of measure working with adults in an academic setting. Middle school, sure, but university students, you can get that condescension here, right? Condescension from professors. I wonder if in part my standards have shifted from teaching abroad. I had believed our higher education system was the last great export. I worry as we lower our student expectations, what will become of that beacon on the hill? Famous Reagan quote about United States. So yes, this guy is clearly over it. He's only 57. Uh, so you're seeing his interactions with students. Uh, but we've talked about it in this space. There does appear to be <clears throat> a general lack in critical thinking. Some of that's from secondary education. Some of that's from primary education. By the time you get up to senior year of college, I can see how that would be distracting or upsetting to a professor that has to teach the real hard stuff at that point in time. That said, as I said, you can see the condescension here, right? You can see what it feels like from the student perspective when a professor has this kind of approach, right? You can imagine him saying in class, you know, I, this is for middle schoolers, but I found it necessary for you people. <laughs> you know, you can see that. And that has its own uh, kind of uh, problematic uh, situation. And yet we do want them to have critical thinking skills. We do want them to actually proceed. And this is medical school again. We're seeing a lot of this commentary on medical school. Britt Cormier has a super chat. True learning is done through knowledge extraction. No matter how much you pour into your brain, you will not know it until you can recall it. That is why pe many people say you do not know it until you can teach it. And I think that's fair. Certainly, there's, it's of limited usefulness to just have all of that stuff in your brain. I have not used the various things that I knew about the European uh, kings and queens of uh, European history, and so it is gone. I studied that once. I knew it for a test. After that test, it slowly dissipated or quickly dissipated, depending on your experience, and I couldn't recall anything from that particular usage. And so you do have to be able to use it or you will lose it, uh, as they say. Uh, but we do want to make sure that professors aren't just being mean to students for the heck of it. And I do think that's an issue as well. Wait, he went from teaching med school to a small liberal arts school? There's a story here. <laughs> I think it's moving back to the United States, honestly. I mean, he was probably teaching at medical schools that don't have an equivalent to the United States. They might not be the top end that the United States cares about. And he moves back here and he teaches what sounds to be probably pre-med at a liberal arts university, would be my guess. Uh, but again, here's the details that are lacking, right? We've heard that comment as we go throughout this video in that those details are missing. And yeah, that's a problem. It's, it's a headlines kind of problem. We're not getting those details from these opinions or for the New York Times. And honestly, the New York Times is just essentially putting op-eds up. By providing better access, I don't have to lower the bar. Here's the alternative to that prior professor statement. I teach physics and astronomy as an adjunct at both a community college and a public university. My students want access, plain and simple. Their lives are complicated with many demands, childcare, elder care, the need for flexibility because of disabilities or pandemic exacerbated 
mental health issues. Who doesn't have pandemic exacerbated mental health issues? Everyone does. I've turned to inclusive teaching methods, warm demander, structured classes with more flexibility, like dropping lowest scores or quiz retaking. We saw this in comments, right? You can just take a test over and over again. Universal design for learning, an approach that presents content in a variety of forms to reach different types of learners, like posting slides before class, using visuals during lectures, course structure with reminders, and sharing videos of those lectures. By providing better access, I don't have to lower the bar. Faculty need training and support to change their practices. It is not okay to expect us to bootstrap a new way of teaching. And here is your youngest professor, 34. So you get some of that new pedagogy type of approach here and an ask right at the end. Right. Universities need to pay us more or they need to provide support for having these new methods otherwise used by us. And that goes back to the New York Times article from the organic chem professor who said he had to pay for his own videos during pandemic, which doesn't make sense to me. That's an absolute job related expense to help your university make those tuition bucks they want so much. So I don't understand why that might be the case. But yes, access is great. All this stuff is great. That did not appear to be responsive, however, to the problems identified in the New York Times article with respect to the organic chemistry professor, because they said they had videos. They had these various calls. The Zoom call is really the only question I have from after they go back to campus, but they had all of these various methods and the professors that were defending him said that they could see that the students didn't access the materials. So I'm not sure exactly how that helps in that particular context. And I believe that's the end of this story. We went through all of the opinions. I believe we basically solved education here today, folks. I think we really got to the core of it. But what do you all think before we leave for the day here and, and send you off on your wonderful Tuesday? Quiz retaking in our high school is a one-shot deal. You get one retake. Okay, that's fair. You had a bad day, right? People have bad days. I have bad days doing this job or practicing law or otherwise. That's just what happens. So I can understand a one retake kind of concept. Okay, something really bad happened. You were in a car accident on the way to school, whatever. You get one retake, but we're not going to do it more than once. RJH00, are any students that are not in the U.S. making these complaints? I don't know. Maybe the whole education system is the problem, not the professors. We all know that primary and secondary education in the U.S. isn't, which might have more information on it, but isn't just kind of makes, makes it, right? Because that's not wrong. KCD says, I think I'm glad I'm no longer in higher ed. Secret McSquirrel says, I have lots of bad days. I'm sorry, Secret McSquirrel. Reba Darling says, thanks for the morning. Mike Rowe has some interesting ideas on education. The Dirty Jobs guy? Okay. Fantastic. Elizabeth Versions, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that. I am recently a profit uni and not much experience, but if I treat the students as adults, they tend to respond very well to this instead of handholding. I hope so. That's my sincere hope, right? You read these stories and unfortunately a lot of us aren't in it. Um, so if you are a university professor and you see them reacting to that, treating them as adults with responsibilities, talking to them, of course, trying to help them, but treating them in that manner and that is working, more power to you because I think that's awesome. I definitely think that's what we need. Francie Luhu, my cousin is a professor. That last quote sounds just like her. Her classes are tough, but she is well-liked by students. It's the ideal. If that information is getting conveyed and you can give that access and you can give those accommodations and you can make them feel like people, all that great stuff, that's the dream. That's the dream. I'm leaving this conversation with the idea that the United States education system has deep systemic, uh, systematic and cultural problems, which makes it woefully under-equipped to educate the current and future generations. Can I say let's hope not? Systems are generally pretty flexible and can respond to these kinds of things. I do think the pandemic broke a lot of things. And when I say pandemic, I primarily mean the pandemic response from governments and universities alike. Uh, so 
I think that there is a place for self-reflection from our betters that operate these major institutions. And I hope that that self-reflection happens. Do I think that is fundamental to the way that we educate people in America? Maybe not. Certainly, I think we can improve. Uh, but I think the pandemic is a special case. Quirk Kitty says, quiz retaking is valuable only if you go over what you did wrong and how to correct it. That makes it a learning tool, not just an evaluation. Oh, absolutely. I think that's what you should be doing. If you've got a quiz retake and one didn't go well for you, you should be evaluating what you missed on the problems and hopefully improving. I think that's potentially a great educational concept. Uh, Z-Nubs, him spending $5,000 of his own money makes me think he's a good prof. I've had profs that had to spend their own money due to the school not wanting to spend it. The profs cared and thought it was needed. That's what the New York Times reported. It still seems odd to me because the actual school was locked down um, for the years in which he did those videos, which I would assume would be something they would pay for. But maybe they just said, take it out of your own wallet. I don't know. Carrie says, part of the problem in the U.S. is people are pushed to pass tests instead of learning how to learn. I can tell you this. Even at the primary and secondary levels, there is so much time dedicated to passing what are essentially the accreditation tests for schools that the states impose upon people in this country uh, that you aren't focusing on a kind of natural or organic, no pun intended with respect to chemistry, way of learning. You're instead almost constantly focused on passing these specific standardized tests. Uh, and that is, I don't think, great. Elbon, I hated handholding as a student. As a teacher, all students respond to things differently. A wide brush is always going to miss someone. Teaching is hard, folks. Tia, uh, I need to change my name before the next education hangouts and headlines because almost every chat is highlighted for me. <laughs> uh, okay, folks, I think we're right about at the end. It's just some great commentary, some great discussion here. Co-counsel says it's because they use those tests to prove they've educated students. Indeed, they do. Indeed, they do. And some people don't test well. Okay, folks, it has been a wonderful episode. Wednesdays are ostensibly weekend Wednesdays. There won't be a Hangouts and Headlines. I have, of course, streamed on the prior two Wednesdays, setting my streak at three weeks or so of consecutive videos. I'm going to try to not stream yesterday. Honest to God, I'm not. Can't make any promises, but I'm going to try to not stream. There might be a virtual legality episode tomorrow. There might be one later today. But otherwise, I will see you on Thursday where we'll talk about uh, I don't know. We might be talking about this big leak of information about how the DHS and the FBI interact with social media networks. I'm really intrigued by that, but I also don't want it to go down politics way. So I'm going to be deciding on whether we cover that on Thursday. Either way, if you love Hangouts and Headlines, please leave a like on the way out. Please subscribe if you're not subscribed. Love having these conversations with all of you. Really fun, really educational stuff this morning or not educational, depending on what perspective you have on these stories. And I will see you on the next Hangouts and Headlines on Thursday or any video in between. Have a great Tuesday, folks, and I'll see you very, very